Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live in the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami. And wait, there's more. We're also joined by Savita Subramania, head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Great to have you with us tonight. Uh, the bulls taking charge on Wall Street as hopes of a trade deal send stocks soaring, but don't break out the rally caps just yet. We've got one chart that could be a screaming sell signal. Also ahead, oil getting a big boost today. RBC's Halima Cross says crude could be turning a big corner. She will join us in later our chart of the day. One of the traders on this very desk says this is one of the best-looking charts in the entire market. We will tell you what it is. But first, do you hear that? What's that? Do you hear that? That is the countdown to the next round of tariffs. Come midnight Sunday, tariffs increased to 15% on some of the remaining $300 billion worth of goods uh, from China. Many big businesses are already warning this new round of tariffs will be a direct hit to the consumer. But today, the market rallied on renewed hopes of a trade deal. So is the market putting too much stock on a trade deal actually happening? Is this just the calm before the storm? Guy, well, we addressed it last night, Mel, and Savita's with it. We, we did uh, the squawk box, the three of us. Right? Yeah. We had so much yeah, fun. We did it for like nine hours one morning. <laughs> but turned, yeah. Last night we talked about, you know, I threw out this term, and then Tim got mad at me. Recall I said, mm-hmm. you know, don't short a dull market. And it's proven to be correct, at least for today. And I think it'll be correct for the next couple of days in through Tuesday into Wednesday. I don't think anything's been resolved. I think the problems that got us down 800 a couple weeks ago are the same problems that exist today. Bonds continue to get negative yields. Now you have 30% of sovereign bonds now with negative yields. All these are huge problems. The market, I think, can continue to rally, though, on the back of the fact that people will be optimistic in the weekend. Who wants to be shortened in the weekend, given what could happen? And I think, you know, it's just one of those things where the market levitates into these long weekends. And how about the pension fund rebalance? How about $20 billion coming into equities? Mm -hmm. How about what the performance was this month? So if you look at what did perform and what didn't perform, you're going to see that flip-flop go into month end as far as pension fund. That's $20 billion. Yeah. What did you make of the rally for the past couple of days, Savita? Last couple of days. I mean, you know, the market's been bouncing around in this pretty tight trading range. I think we're just trying to absorb what's happening next. I mean, I think what's interesting is when you listen to companies that are going to be hit by the tariffs, they're talking about not actually being able to pass that price increase down to the consumer. So I guess there's good and bad, right? Because the consumer's not necessarily going to be whacked by this because companies are going to eat that extra extra price hike. But company corporate profits are potentially going to take a hit from this. So yeah. I think that's the scary part of the, the tariff scenario. This is going to be a long, long story. I don't think it even gets resolved um, you know, by the end of this year. I think it moves into election year, and I think it's a continued overhang on the market. So, I mean, if that's the scenario, then we are going to look at the full $550 billion worth of goods from China being tariffed and at an even potentially higher rate than originally announced because of the most recent increases. And what is the impact? Yeah, to you most think? likely. And I think that, like, I think a lot of market participants or a lot of people who are trying to affect or figure out what the effect on the economy would be, they'd love to see it in, in just different tactics. They'd love to see it behind the scenes. They'd love to see it kind of petered out in a way that um, just is not 
moving world markets around the way it is. And I think that as far as the markets are concerned, I think you're going to go back to July 31st. You've got to go back to that, that rate uh, mm-hmm. cut that we had the first in 10 years. The stock market, the S&P 500, was trading above 3,000 then, right? And so the next day, it was August 1st where we got that tweet. And that's what I'm saying. If this was done behind the scenes, we wouldn't have had such a massive reaction, a violent reaction downward. And to, to Savita's point, so we spent most of August trading in this range. Guy says, don't short a dull market. Fine, we can get back to 3,000. We might even make a new little high if the lies on Twitter are just a little bit better than they were a month ago, that sort of thing. But I think it's really important to remember that the stock market, since January of 2018, here in the U.S., it's been one step up and it's been two or three back. The incremental highs, the three highs that we've had since January 2018, have not been particularly impressive and they have not been a place to buy a breakout in by any means. The opportunities have been after the sellouts. But it is uh, lining after up the for one or the other. So we're building sort of a, a more narrow base, if you will. So we've been bouncing around back here, and the market hasn't broken down either. So that's been what impressive. Do you mean? I mean, three times, Steve, since January. We've had Protected 10% sell-off, 7% sell-off, a 20% sell-off. I mean, we've had some serious sell-offs. I'm talking about you, you started from August. So I'm looking at the August right. number. So the, the lows have been slightly higher lows, which is constructive. And they've thrown everything at this market that you would think mm-hmm. would send it in a death spiral. What are you talking about? Sending it? Dude, the, what, look at Fed funds. They're pricing it at least a 25 basis point cut next month. Some people are thinking 50. That, like, so, I mean, we, throwing out that, isn't have, that we bullish have held, for though. equities? Everything has been so completely negative for the marketplace as far as trade is concerned. That's true. But then we also have always had the backstop of the Fed. The Fed always seems to come in. I don't know if we've had a backstop. I don't know if we've had a backstop. Sounds like Powell and and Trump have been fighting uh, like like cats and dogs. Hold on, Steve. On July 31st, Chairman Powell said that one of the reasons they did this mid-quarter adjustment was to kind of combat some of the The issues that are the the trade stuff. I mean, so to me, it does seem like it's very balanced. Trade stuff and lack of inflation. But then every time we think... Okay, it's going to be 25. We sort of have to back away from that. So now we had to push it to okay. the 50 basis points to get the 25. But I don't think there's anything so, carved in stone. That's so what the market was telling you. Let's extrapolate, though. I mean, Savita, you said it, if this, if the next round of tariffs, two rounds, whatever it may be, um, hits corporate profits and we have to ratchet down expectations, that is sure to hit the markets, I would think. You know, I there think has to be an adjustment. in the stocks to a certain extent. I mean, what's interesting to me is if you look at the companies with the highest import exposure to China, they have already massively derated. They've derated almost three times as much as the market multiple has shrunk. So I feel like some of this is actually in the stocks. And then, you know, when you look at the actual companies that will be impacted, I mean, the good news is a lot of U.S. corporates have been in the process for like the last decade of sourcing outside of China. So this isn't all hitting corporate America by surprise. They always knew they had risk of China exposure. So now, you know, I think that what happens next is it's a little bit of a song and dance. I think, you know, what's interesting is that we're moving into a presidential election year. So that also creates a little bit more drama around how much of an economic hit is Trump willing to take in order to play nice with China. So you think there's a backstop of Trump? So there's Trump, the election year, right. and there's the Fed. Because right. I do think the Fed has mm-hmm. um, has been relatively uh, accommodative and supportive of risk assets. The problem with, it, with trying to figure out the impact to corporate profits is that just taking a look at how many 
companies, ex, you know, bring in however many goods from China, that has never given you the full impact, right? It's Those never, I mean, take a look at what Autodesk said or what Box said just this week. Cisco, I think, as well. Cisco as well. That. And Cisco, we thought, had moved its supply chain enough to get around and within three impacts. months it seems like right. things changed dramatically for cisco and it's it comes down to you know where's the confidence for capex and you had mentioned september for a while is a confidence there I don't, I don't think it is and i agree with savita i don't think and i've said this for a while now i don't think there's gonna be any resolution to this u.s china situation i think you're gonna have a series of we're going back to the table we're not at the table but with that said you know you said something these tariffs were going to are going to take place on either with sunday night or monday night mm-hmm. i'm not necessarily sure that's the case you could see a scenario where President Trump on Friday night or into Saturday, sure. something like President Xi and I had a beautiful conversation. Right. We've decided that, you know, we're going to have conversations we'll in a month tariffs. from now. We're going to pull the tariffs. He's so focused on the market. I absolutely could see something like happening. With that said, you're at a point of now diminishing margin and returns where the market now seems to more and more discount his comments. I'm, I think next week is a positive week. I think we set up for a really dicey mid-September. All right. Well, if you caught the show yesterday, you will remember that we showed you this chart of the S&P 500 forming what Brian Kelly called a megaphone pattern. Some are saying it's setting us up for a major drop. Our next guest is in that camp. Sven Henrik is founder and lead market strategist at Northman Trader. Sven joins us from London. Sven, it's always great to have you with us. So we didn't actually have a technician or some, you know, interpret this chart for us. But what do you see here? Hi, Melissa. Yeah, this broadening wedge pattern we've been watching actually for quite a few months and was interesting in the lead up to July because in July, obviously, we had all this anticipation with the Fed rate cut. And, and the markets had been running in 2019 really from Fed meeting to Fed meeting, from Fed speech to Fed speech. And then when that rate cut came, we tagged that broadening wedge again for the, like three weeks in a row. But then we reversed, as a guy mentioned earlier, regarding the Trump tweet regarding new new tariffs. So we definitely now have a technical validation of that upper trend line. And obviously, the question is, can bulls get above that trend line? You know, it's not necessarily a bearish pattern, because if you can get above the trend line, defend it as support and then rally on, you can, you can argue you have a ma- massive rally coming. The problem is, if I look at this, and I'm looking for validation here of, of some sort, is besides this megaphone pattern, we actually built a, what is called a rising wedge in 2019. And what I'm impressed about by all of these patterns is that they've been very technically clean. You know, we go from these noisy headlines where markets get moved up or down on any given day for any reason, and yet these patterns have been clean so far. But what happened in August is that rising wedge actually broke to the downside. That's kind of your, your kind of classic warning sign. Uh, and so markets will have to repair that or face risk of further downside to come. So can you bottom line that for us, Sven? I mean, as I understand it from the notes, you're, you're still <clears throat> seeing a, a viable dip sometime in the next couple of months. But after that, who knows? Well, absolutely. I, actually, what we're looking at here short term is there's a possibility if the VIX goes up to 2830, there's a currently a pattern on the VIX that suggests that there's a distinct possibility. We may have a viable dip. Look, these megaphone patterns, this is a long-term structural chart. It's not going to play out you know, in a straight line or in a, few, in a few weeks necessarily. This could take on for, for months. And I think generally people just need to be aware that it's out there as long as it's not invalidated. And it's clearly not invalidated. So that's a risk for bulls and it needs to be moved higher uh, and that means above that trend line otherwise 
with a break of uh, 2700, for example, you're starting to risk that this pattern goes active. Sven, you know I'm a big and fan. And the ultimate of target of that one is 2100. You know I'm a huge fan of your work. I think you do extraordinarily thoughtful work, bullish and bearish. Is it just about the trade war, or is it about now, and you tweeted this today, something we talk about, U.S. debt to GDP, 105%, give or take. You know, 30% now of sovereign bonds have negative yields. Currency crisis or currency war, there's so many things other than U.S.-China going on that seem to be potentially negative for the market. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if we get a China deal, we can have a massive relief rally for, for that reason. But I'm looking at it also from a larger cycle perspective. And what has happened in the last year and a half with central banks across the globe, I think has been incredibly insightful. I mean, look, originally the promise was that QE and low interest rates, these emergency measures were just going to be temporary. And then they morphed into this permanent aspect of the market structure and ban central banks always intervened when the when markets got into any sort of trouble and the to the credit of the US Fed and I'm highly critical of them they at least tried to raise rates and they tried to reduce their balance sheet but it failed miserably last year as the 10 year got to 3.2% the question was almost you know this big debt construct that we've created over the last 10 years is not sustainable with higher rates. And, and we got that answer last year when we hit the 3.2% on the 10-year, and we've completely collapsed since then. So what is the central bank efficacy game here going forward? The Fed actually is cutting rates here with the financial conditions being the loosest in 25 years. It's, it's unfathomable. When, when you have loose financial conditions, typically central banks raise rates. And what are they trying to accomplish here by going even looser than what we've seen before? I mean, look at the uh, housing data you're getting with mortgage apps, with, with yields collapsing at the 30-year making all-time lows. We don't really see any growth here mm -hmm. in, in the housing market. So what's, what's the end game here in terms of efficacy? And, and I worry that obviously we are reaching a point where central banks can only do so right. much. So going back to the structural view of the markets, then, you think that without a China trade deal and with, as you mentioned, central banks seeming to lose control of what's going on here, that 2100 on the S&P 500 uh, could be in the sights of, of market participants? Yeah, I mean, look, it sounds dramatic, but it really isn't. If you go back to the, the 2009 lows, actually, there's a, a technical level, a Fibonacci level at 38.2. It brings us back to the 2015 highs. It's actually, from that perspective, not dramatic. And ironically, that's kind of what the bond market's been signaling, right? The 10 years already back to the levels of the U.S. election in, in 2016. So, again, if... You have nine major economies around the globe already either in a recession or at the verge of a recession. And this China trade deal, the longer it's been dragging on and dragging on, it keeps kind of everybody here on, on the side playing with fire here. Because I, and I think this is why we're seeing these violent reactions now to every single news headline. I think the market is getting impatient. market wants this resolved. And to the extent that this, again, gets pushed into next year, perhaps, I, I think markets will lose patience as, as we see Europe, for example, overtly flirting here with recession at this point. Sven, thanks. Good to see you. Sven Henrik, a.k.a. Northman Thank Trader. You, uh, Steve, what do you make of Sven's levels? Uh, you know, when we were at 28 and change and I had seen in the charts 23.50, that was a big uh, drop. And we, we touched it. When you say 2100, I never discount 
any of this. And all of this is always possible. possible. You always rip through. There's lack of support when people start to see blood in the streets. So is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. Coming up, it is the best-looking chart in the entire market, according to one of our traders. Need a hint? It's a big tech name. We'll tell you what it is and why it's looking so good. But things are looking real ugly for Ulta Beauty. After reporting results, we'll find out what went wrong. We're live from Times Square, New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big news from Apple today. The company announcing it will hold its next iPhone event on September 10th. But Apple might experience some product pain heading into next month, starting this Sunday. Wearable devices, including the Apple Watch and AirPods, could get hit with a 15% tariff. Josh Lipton's in San Francisco with more on all of this. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, we often talk about Tim Cook's skills as an executive, as a supply chain veteran, but also as a diplomat. He has kept the lines of communication open with this White House. So how well will that now serve Cook and his shareholders as Apple navigates these trade tensions and tariff threats? A test is coming up here. Apple's watch and AirPods could face 15 percent tariffs beginning September 1st. Apple has now sold an estimated 80 million watches and 50 million AirPods. Apple could decide to absorb those tariffs, of course. Analysts estimate that could cost it about $500 million. Or Apple could try and pass along price increases to consumers. Analysts I spoke to, though, are actually more concerned about potential levies imposed on the iPhone, possibly coming on December 15th. If Apple's hit with all these potential tariffs, Evercore estimates it could take a hit of at least $5 billion. But there is another possibility here, that the company earns exemptions from these tariffs. Remember, the president did say he thought Cook made a good case when it comes to these levies. Tim was talking to me about tariffs. And, you know, one of the things that he made a good case is that Samsung is their number one competitor and Samsung is not paying tariffs because they're based in South Korea. And it's tough for Apple to pay tariffs if they're competing with a very good company. Now, I checked in with Gene Munster over at Loop Ventures. He bets Apple will not get hit with tariffs on its finished products, not wearables, not iPhones, that the company will earn these exemptions. Munster says the U.S. government won't ultimately want to penalize such popular products from an iconic American company. Melissa, back to you. Josh, do most analysts think that Apple will, in fact, absorb all of these costs? When you say $5 billion for all of it, um, that's per what time frame? Well, so that's that's that was actually I checked in with Evercore's Ahmed Darinani. Mm-hmm. That's Melissa. If really all these tariffs actually go through, right. according to his math, um, he would think they would have to take a five billion dollar hit there. Now, of course, um, there's a whole bunch of levers that Cook could could try to be. Uh, uh, pull here. You know, you could absorb the tariffs. You could try to pass along some price increases. You could do a combination of the two. Um, some people think um, if push came to shove, he could b- move more manufacturing out of China, maybe mm-hmm. to other places like Vietnam. I'd add, though, when I talked to Cook um, the, 
last time they reported earnings. At that point, he had said he had made no significant changes to his supply chain. A fourth option, though, could be you could also, of course, lean on your suppliers to make price concessions to offset that tariff impact. We'll see, Melissa. Okay, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco. Uh, Dan Nathan, what do you think it does? So here's the thing with the tariffs as it relates to Apple and getting some sort of exemption. You know, Apple really owns the high-end market here in the U.S., and Samsung really sells to a much lower price point. So to me, you know, with double the ASPs, the average selling prices that Apple has over Samsung, I don't really think it's a great case. It's a good place if you want to kind of play politics and you want to favor, but I don't know how the president can start to favor Apple's products over, let's say, Whirlpool's products or something like that. It gets into a really tricky spot. So I actually do not think Apple gets exemptions. And then let's play it out. Let's say Apple doesn't get the exemption. Let's say Apple does pay yeah. the tariffs. Let's say Apple doesn't pass it on to the consumer. They squeeze it out of their supply chain. So it's all of these companies. It's a ripple effect on their supply chain that ends up paying these tariffs and their profits get squeezed. Yeah. What happens to numbers? Well, I mean, here's the thing, though. I think the actual direct impact of the tariffs on companies like Apple I mean, it's big, but for the overall S&P 500, even if you put through all the tariffs that are on the table right now, the hit to corporate earnings is only about a percentage point of growth. So the direct impact, I think, is arguably less important. But the indirect impact is that, you know, folks just seize all operations. They stop spending on new projects. There's supply chain disruption. I mean, this just sort of mucks everything up at a, at a more indirect level. I actually think the, t- the costs are relatively manageable for the overall market. I think the stock has been performing well as of late. And when you look at what is really going to be taxed, I'm worried about the iPhone. The iPhone's the biggest seller. The iPhone's the biggest percentage of the revenues. And we're not looking at that until December. So we have a bunch of other stuff that's very small. So when you add that, that big number together, it sounds cataclysmic. But when you look at what you're really, uh, the wearables and the desktops, that doesn't amount to a whole lot of their revenues. Even though it's significant, it's not the iPhone. The iPhone comes on in December. That's what I'd be concerned. Okay, let's stick with technology. We mentioned the best-looking chart in the entire market. And unbelievably, this best-looking chart is courtesy of Dan Nathan. Come on. I hope he doesn't have to do one tomorrow. Well, how would here's, you here's the I thing. Mean, What's really interesting <laughs> about this, it's Microsoft. And it's also the largest market cap on the planet at over a trillion dollars. And it's really interesting to me because, you know, you guys know I'm a MAGA guy here, right? Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Uh-huh. You know, Microsoft really stands out, not just because of the size of it, but look at that consolidation. It's made above 130 since the beginning of June. It's held that uptrend from December, and it really feels like it wants to break out. And, you know, we talk about trade all the time. This stock is telling you that a substantive trade deal, a deal that, you know, affects uh, IP theft and forced technology transfer and all those sorts of things, not just trade imbalance, that chart shows some optimism about that. I'm not telling you I'm particularly optimistic, but when you look at the other ones, you, you know, you have Apple that's down 11% from its all-time highs. has not confirmed any of the new highs in the S&P this year. Either is Amazon, down about 12%. Amazon's below that uptrend from December. It looks like a broken chart. And then you have Google. But Google and Apple are both still have not retaken those gap highs that they had after strong Q2 earnings. And that is a signal of relative weakness, whereas Microsoft is showing lots of signs of relative strength. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Well, you raised your hand. Yeah, I thought I'd be nice to Dan since he brought yeah. a nice optimistic chart to the table well, for a change. <laughs> um, why can't that chart just be 
Microsoft looks great. Its business is, is more insulated from China than some it's of the other cloud. ones. And so yeah. it's, it's fine as opposed to it's a statement on whether or not a China trade deal is going to well, happen. I'm not saying it is a statement. But okay. what I'm saying is there's a lot of things wrapped up in there. And if you think about what Autodesk had to say, it's a much, much smaller company. Um, there are risks here. And there, the risk to this one is that it is used as a piggy bank if for some reason everything goes south because there's a lot of concentration in that name. That stock's up 36% of the year, but it's still very constructive. I, you know, it's interesting. Maybe Microsoft, I think to Savita's point, it's just getting a, it's getting repriced in terms of valuation. You know, it's going from old Microsoft to this new cloud company. Yep. And now at 24 times, I think maybe it's not as expensive as you might have thought it was five or six years ago. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Oil Alert. RBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Ouch. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Don't play Damn, nice, he, guys. No, he hit me no in the hitting break. on the desk, all right? <laughs> Stocks rallying on Wall Street today on renewed hopes of a trade deal. Oil also benefiting from thawing tensions between the U.S. and China. So that got us thinking, what would happen to crude if we actually struck a trade deal, say, tomorrow? Or on the flip side, what would happen if talks were completely to collapse? Let's bring in CNBC contributor Halima Croft to weigh in on the latest development. She's global head of commodity strategy for RBC Capital Markets. Halima, always great to speak with you. Um, I guess we're trying to figure out what the range for oil could be in the best case and the worst case scenario. So let's start off with the best case scenario. How, how high could we go if there was a deal tomorrow? I mean, best case scenario, deal tomorrow. We think oil, WTI, is probably going back up to 60. You'd probably get some producer hedging at that point, which could cap the immediate upside. But certainly the physical market is looking better. We've had these inventory draws. We still have a lot of geopolitical tension in the Middle East, still a lot of issues around Iran. And if we get the trade war off ramp, we think the geopolitical stories become more important as, as well as improving physical market stories. So the question is, at that point, could you potentially get back to 66, the highs of earlier this year? I think we need to have more geopolitical noise. We'd have to have OPEC basically coming out in a couple of weeks' time and saying they could potentially go deeper. But that's the type of situation to get you back to the highs we've seen earlier this year. So 66 would not be an issue, even though there's so many economies around the world that are 
close to or or in contraction? Well, again, we think going to 60 is where we basically make the first move up to. Mm -hmm. The question about getting back up to sort of the highs of earlier this year is, do we continue to see inventory draws? Do we continue to have OPEC out there saying whatever it takes? Because if you look at the OPEC producers, they certainly want prices higher than even, you know, $60. I mean, they're looking more to get to like 70 brand. So the question is, how constructive are they going to be? And then the issue of Iran. I mean, we do have still a a lot of tension involving Iran. We have this shadow war that's going on with Israeli strikes on Iranian targets in places like Syria and places like Iraq. That has the potential to cause a much greater conflict in the Middle East. So those are the type of things that could come together to bring oil back to the highs we were at earlier this year. Let's go to the downside, the, the worst case scenario. What would that be in your view? I mean, the things fall apart scenario, I mean, if we essentially have the talks break off tomorrow, we think we'd certainly be retesting the sort of $52 mark and then potentially going down to about 50 That's on trade war alone. There is even a more bearish scenario, and that would be if the Iranian nuclear talks actually produce some type of breakthrough, and then we start thinking about 2 million barrels of Iranian oil coming back onto the market. That would, I think, be the worst-case scenario for oil, because that would be a really big hit to the physical markets. And the question is, is there anything OPEC could do in that type of scenario to put a floor under prices? So I think Iran is really important to watch both from a bull case and a bear case. Halima, great to see you. Thank you. Halima Croft, RBC. Um, The bull case scenario, does that make energy stocks more investable in your view? Oh, energy is deep value. I mean, it's all about oil. Deep value in a good way or in a bad way? I mean, like, right now it looks like a value trap, but I think oil is the pivot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What I worry about with oil and crude is just the dollar. I mean, we've had so much um, kind of consternation about currencies especially about a stronger dollar, and that's anathema to oil, right? I mean, that's what we really want to think about. So there's supply, there's Iran, there's geopolitics, but there's also the ever-present currency risk of a stronger dollar scenario. So oil has been in decline for as far back on my chart. You go to 2018, it's been in a series of lower highs, not really lower lows. There is a day of reckoning. So Halima had mentioned what the downside would be. You see 42 as an ultimate downside, but you do see a lot of headwinds for oil. We are still in oversupplied mode in oil. You could have you couldn't have scripted a better scenario for a bullish scenario, bullish outcome in crude. And we haven't gotten that. So I think lower price. Yeah, I just would make one point at a geopolitical uh, political standpoint. The likelihood of anything happening with Iran right now is not great. If you think about they have an, the Israelis have an election coming up very soon. We have an election coming up really soon. This was one of the weirdo situations, I think, that came out of the G7. So I wouldn't think about any optimism about that. And then you could just extrapolate it to the excitement about some sort of um, deal with North Korea over the last two years. Nothing's happening anytime soon. So anything built into the price of oil right now would not be good. It's interesting. You know, we go to the smart board and do power pitches, and I try to power pitch Devin, and that didn't didn't work out all that well. But, yeah, I tell you, you look at a name, for example, look at Schlumberger. This stock is trading at $32. It's lower than it was in 2008, 2009. You remember how bad things were then. So as much as you want to say deep value, and she's right, they're extraordinarily difficult to get your arms around, I think, to Steve's point. So you just got to wait these out. Coming up, the mouse that roared, how Disney's new streaming service could be bigger than everyone thinks. We'll explain, plus Ulta and Workday on the move after hours. We'll give you the highlights from their earnings calls. Much more Fast Money straight ahead.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out this uh, dollar darling, dollar general surging double digits today after crushing earnings estimates and raising full-year guidance. This big beat coming as other parts of the retail trade have struggled with earnings this week. Luxury brand Tiffany plunged before recouping losses, while Williams-Sonoma and Best Buy are both down big on the back of their report. So are the discount retailers the place to be? And, and Guy, what was your call on dollar gen? Would no, listen, put? remember we talked about that dollar gen a couple weeks ago. We said, you know, know, it's pricey. You're probably going to fast fire me. Remember we used to do a thing called fast fire? Right. I said, but dollar gen and earnings looks pretty good. And Dan totally, what's the word we use? Eviscerated me. Yeah. Thank you, Melms. <laughs> but this was an old power pitch as well. And you know what? It's still not expensive at 21 times forward earnings. So although the stock has been on fire and seemingly impervious to the tape, mm-hmm. I think you've got to stay with this name. I think... Today's price action in this and Walmart and Target and, you know, over the last couple of weeks is telling you something kind of interesting. When you look at Williams-Sonoma, you just mentioned Tiffany's, Tapestry, Capri. There's a bifurcation going on in retail. And then it's not just even the crappy names that, because we know that, the, you know, the Coles and the Macy's and all that stuff. That's a separate thing. That's yeah. a structural issue. So what I would think about as we go into the holiday season and back to school, then the holiday season is how much of this trade war is going to impact the ability for companies or, or retailers to discount during the holiday season? We know that's been a huge factor in the retail sales in Q4. So to me, I don't think this sets up as bullish. I don't look at Dollar General making new highs and blowing out like this and saying, oh, you want to buy retail stocks into Q4. I just don't see it. I think you want to buy discount retailers, though. I mean, here's the thing. If you look at a chart of oil prices and discount versus luxury, it's the same chart. I mean, it's basically lower oil prices give discount retailers a huge boost because it's a regressive tax, right? But I think what's interesting right now is that you've got I mean, the chart that we saw earlier on um, jobless claims, that's what you want to watch because the the U.S. consumer, especially the lower end, we've seen huge um, increases in minimum wage. We've seen low oil and gas prices. That's all been a great petri dish for lower income consumers. But now if things start to change on either of those levels, I think that's where you want to watch out. I think, uh, you know, a lot of these names. Dan uh, talked about Kohl's and, and Macy's. Macy's, but I look at Kohl's going into Christmas, and they have that JV with Amazon, and there's been so much bad news. Just for a contrarian play, I'd like to think about Kohl's going into Christmas because I really? think so much of the negativity. But it's not my favorite retail name. I mean, my favorite, one of my favorites is Costco still, even with the latest pop. But Kohl's is a contrarian bet, I think, I think is very attractive for people who want to play in that segment. All right, let's switch gears here. The mouse is in the house. A lot of houses, actually. According to a UBS survey, a whopping 43% of U.S. households say they intend to subscribe to Disney's new streaming service, Disney+. Plus. That is well above even Disney's own estimates of 20 to 30%. Among people who intend to subscribe, nearly 60% said they would cancel at least one current streaming service. And that could mean more bad news for Netflix, which is down 22% since mid-July and just entered the proverbial death cross. So is everyone understanding the power of Disney Plus? Dan, you're one of those people who's going to subscribe. I love it. I mean, I, listen, I think this thing, you know, I think it's interesting that 43% of the responses to that thing, I think it's going to go higher. I think that it, this week, the Mandalorian, this is going to be a, just for Disney Plus, a Star Wars, uh, you know, series that's only going to be there. They're pulling off all this Marvel stuff. This is not about Netflix, in my opinion. This is really about Disney. And I think it's really interesting that in 2015, Disney topped out at 120, and it spent years. And it broke out when they introduced Disney Plus in April above 120, and it went to 130. It has held 130. It traded as high as 147. I think you trade this thing all day long. You buy it. You would love to see a gap fill, 
back towards one or below 130 because you want to buy it in front of the numbers when they start issuing them in the fall. You had a quizzical look as yeah, soon as Dan uh, opened his mouth. It sounded like a guy from the end. Um, Dan DeLorean? Mandalorian. 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 I knew you were going to ask about that. Just like a descendant of the Boba Fett family from, you know, first introduced. <laughs> oh, that explains it. Star Wars Empire Strikes <laughs> Back. Like we all know what that is. 81. What, you That's the more you know. No, but I, I think the main point is they are making content for this uh, this Lucas universe, for the Marvel universe. It's just going to be there. I mean, there's a glow in your eye that I've never seen. Well, I love he's a huge, he's the biggest Star Wars fan. Un- unbelievable. He's huge. I'm like guy who's not seen a single. I've never seen one. Anything. And I, I listen. There's no shot that I'm going to see Dan DeLorean. Although I'm sure he's a very good character. <laughs> but you know, with that, and listen, Dan's right. Everything he said. There's no earnings growth here, folks. They're going to make six dollars this year, six dollars next year. I mean, maybe they sort of roll into this valuation. But it's still a you're making a bit well, of a hold on, guy. Leap. You just said yeah. in that last block about Microsoft, they're moving this recurring revenue stream. Did, did, you can totally, make the same argument about Disney. Did it already. But that's did, the point. Microsoft this did is, it already. They're not launching a new product to grow into a market cap. Disney's launching a new product, which know. is we don't know what the uptake is. Maybe it we know what the uptake is. We've seen Netflix go from zero streaming subscribers to 150 million globally in seven years. So we know how this is going to go. We also know in their last earnings report, when they announced that deal with Hulu, we're going to see a lot of live streaming stuff for. for this, this is it, guys. This is the play for the next 10 years. Here's my Netflix question. was the last 10 years. Is Disney going to be added to MAGA? Could be. I don't well, know. We'd have to move be? some letters around I mean, there. I don't know get, what get it would be, freaky, but... get a little but we'll see. <laughs> That's a tough one. It's a tough one. MAGA, I'm not yeah. sure. MACD. First of all, when, how many people was this poll with? 1,000 people, whatever, whatever the number was? A sample. I- insignificant sample to me. I, but I've always been on record saying that I think people will do this streaming where you'll own a bunch of them. I don't think it's necessarily going to take away from one or the other. Netflix has its own individual problems, up 10% year-to-date, still in a trending down cycle. So that needs to be rescued. Disney, to Dan's point, has held these levels Pretty unbelievably to me, I thought 130 was going to be the death nail for that. I thought it was going to retrace. It hasn't so far. So I do think there's still some tailwinds. Parks, $24 billion. There's a lot of things to get excited about Disney. I'm not going to rush out and buy it at this level. I'll wait for it to hold. Coming up, an earnings alert on Ulta Beauty. The stock plunging in the after hours will take you inside Ulta's ugly quarter and later financials getting a boost today. And one trader just made a million-dollar bet that the bottom could be in for one big bank. We've got much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast. We've got an earnings alert on Ulta. The stock absolutely tanking down 21%. Let's get back to Eric Chemi uh, at headquarters with the details. Eric. That's right, Melissa. Tanking is the right word. Ulta Beauty shares down 20% on a rough second quarter report, missing on both the top and the bottom lines. That came with a pretty significant miss on same-store sales. Add another negative in a huge full-year guidance cut, dropping from about $13 a share down to about $12 a share. That comes with a significant cut in revenue growth guidance as well, down from what had previously been a low double-digit rate. Now it's going to be 9 to 12 percent. Loop Capital analyst Anthony Chicumba weighed in after the release, saying it was the first earnings miss and guidance cut in his memory, and he noted that the outlook revision was sizable, given how good the company's first half was. And moments ago on the call, CEO Mary Dillon cited softness in the U.S. cosmetics market. She said growth has been slowing and recently turned negative for that category. Despite all that, right now the stock's actually still a little bit positive year-to-date, but just barely. Ulta had benefited by being the home 
for Kylie Jenner's cosmetics line. But right now, that's clearly not enough for the traders out there. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Eric. Thank you, Eric Chemi. I always thought there was like a lipstick, like women would always buy things like lipsticks, even when times were tough, because it's a small luxury I, talk, I to, talk to the lady over here. <laughs> I thought you wanted to comment on. No, that I do. I, you know, one thing I will tell you this: that I, I have two teenage daughters, and I will tell you this: that this is discretionary spend. So if you're a woman and you're in the yeah. workplace, I, I, you know, I, I could see that. But my kids have spent a lot of money at Ulta, and that would be one place where, when things get tight, and I just want to make one other point: when market downings like this get hit very near highs, you got to start looking for this over the next couple of months, because this is no doubt about it, a darling over the last I think it was about positioning, years. so I think that adds to it. So, so many people were in this, and they had traffic and sales. When the malls were not getting traffic and sales, they were able to pull it, you know, sort of out of behind, uh, out of left field. And it was a lot of it was the social aspect of it, where they were paying a lot of social media people that were just lifting up their brand. They gave away half of today. I think it's about positioning. They, half of their year's performance, I should say. It's about positioning. So the darlings that you had, people are going to go looking elsewhere. They got enamored by the growth. They got enamored by sales. And now all of a sudden, if you can't put it up, you get the investment community to say, well, you know what? What have you done for me lately? Yeah. You know, the, the weirdest trade this year that's worked beautifully is if you bought the 10 most crowded, or sorry, you shorted the 10 most crowded stocks and you bought the 10 most underweighted stocks in the average U.S. mutual fund, you would have made 16 percentage points so mm. far this year. Like way better than any other mm. hedge fund out there. I mean, it's a pretty insane level mm. of alpha that you're getting just from right. positioning. I think you're completely right. I thought right. the most crowded trades were like the big tech uh big tech stocks so you no know. not necessarily okay well you mean like netflix like, it's gone from well, 380 netflix to 300 tesla them, yeah. has got right. i mean there's, yeah. there's a lot of these scenarios where big the darling's gotten hit what did we mention last night remember i said you have that beautiful pashmina i'm mentioning yes, this for five, a reason five below five below five and below. you notice when you drive around if you look you see a five below you know it's right next door to five below a lot of time there are these ultra beauties i know it sounds crazy you might want to fact check that why do i bring that up because five below crushed and Ulta didn't. It's interesting. So may, uh, people are clearly not going. With that said, uh-huh. 245 was the low back, I think, on December 24th. That's your line in the sand because as lousy as this quarter was, I think it actually looks like value around the $250 level. All right. Up next, a big bet on a big bank. Why one options trader thinks the pain could be over for one of the financials. We'll break down the action ahead. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more fast money still ahead. Delivering Alpha, the most important investor summit, nine years running. Strategy from leading alpha generators. Direct access to policymakers and government leaders. On September 19th, see who's calling the shots now. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com to attend this year's blockbuster event. You will come away with ideas that you can put to work immediately. Plus, special guest Vice President Mike Pence talks economy and trade war impact. Reserve your spot now at DeliveringAlpha.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The financials flying higher today, up 2%, now positive over the last week. And the options market thinks one beaten down bank is signaling that the bottom is in. Dan's over at the plasma with the options action, Dan. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, Morgan Stanley, obviously one of the uh, the big uh, U.S. investment banks there. Uh, put volume was three times that of calls today, but it didn't look particularly bearish. It looked like there was an opening seller of 20,000 of the November 36 
puts when the stock was trading about 41.33. Um, and if you're a seller of puts, that is a bullish trade, and you want the stock to stay above that put strike, which was 36. So taking in 60 cents for 20,000, that would be $1.2 million in premium the trader would take in if the stock in November uh, expiration is above 36 bucks. Worst case scenario, the trade, um, the trader would be put 2 million shares of stock at 36, but really 35.40 plus that premium that they took in. So kind of an interesting trade on a day where financials uh, were kind of rocking and rolling. Pretty interesting, because last night around the same time, Guy Adami sauntered over the smart board mm-hmm. here and made this really bullish power pitch. Short-term trade, it sounded like, on Citigroup. So it seems like Guy is kind of leading the pack here with some bullish trading activity. I'll just make one point about Morgan Stanley. This stock is up 4% of the year, really underperforming the XLF and really underperforming its peer, more, uh, Goldman Sachs, which is up 21%. Um, percent. But look at this chart right here. This thing looked like like a textbook, head and shoulders. One of the interesting things about that 36 strike is that was the low back in December here. Um, so does this stock have a little room to run? If you look at this downtrend that it's been in, yeah, maybe possibly up to the mid-40s here in the near term. And that may be what uh, that trader is betting against by selling those downside puts in November expiration. But let's look at this chart here going back five years. This was the ramp after the November 2016 um, election. And this was the level the stock was trading the day after 11, uh, the election. That's 36 bucks here. So it appears to me that this trader is picking a very interesting level that would be a basically a round trip to the December lows and the November 16th breakout uh, session here. So, you know, interesting underperformer here, not a particular bullish bet because the worst case scenario for this trade is that the stock is down 15% in November expiration and that's where the trader starts losing money. Savita, do you like financials? I love financials. You love financials. My top uh, favorite sector. And I mean, one of the reasons is it's super cheap, but it's not a value trap. It's actually real value. I mean, earnings have come in. I think it was the third best sector this earnings season in terms of the number of beats. Um, It's paying a real dividend. So little known fact about financials, it has the highest shareholder yield out of any sector in the S&P 500. So if you add up buybacks and dividend yield, because it's so cheap, it's the highest shareholder yield out of any sector. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story in an environment where interest rates are super low. The problem is nobody will trade it against anything except for the yield curve and rates. Right. So it's kind of mistakenly assumed to be a rate play, but I think it's so much more. It's quality, it's dividends, it's cash return, it's delevered. There's a lot going on with the sector that's very different from what it was in 2007. You should have put shareholder yield in your Citigroup power pitch. Yours wasn't a beautiful story last night. This sounded like a beautiful story. <laughs> <laughs> For more options, action, check out the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade Time, Steve Grosso. TSE was my final trade last night, my final trade again. In the last three days, it's up 15%. It was clobbered, and now that you're starting to see money coming back into the chemical space, TSE. Savita. Uh, I'm going to stick with U.S. financials. I mean, it's got the highest shareholder yield. It's inexpensive. It is uh, positive earnings growth. And it's the most hated sector in the S&P 500. It's a real contrarian bet. Dan. Yeah, Microsoft calls. CBS, sister. All right. See you tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information.
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.